Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Nathan Deal is packed and ready to leave the governor's office, taking with him one of the highest approval ratings of any governor in modern Georgia history. What did he do to appeal to Republicans and Democrats alike? Brian Kemp moves into the office on Monday. How will he begin his tenure as Georgia's 83rd governor? This is Political Rewind. I'm glad you're with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Let me get right to our panel today. Jim Galloway, the AJC's lead political writer. He's in the Wednesday and Sunday uh, hard edition of the newspaper and also oversees the pol- Political Insider blog. Hi, Jim. Glad for, for uh, to have the chance to talk to you again Great today. Great to be here. Happy Friday. Uh, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurmond is back with us. Uh, Michael has served in Maybe more offices in state government than I mean, <laughs> you, know, the, you were a state <laughs> representative. You're, now, of course, CEO of the county. You were the labor commissioner of the state of Georgia. You were the school superintendent of DeKalb County. You were a candidate for Senate. What am I missing? I can't remember, but um, <laughs> delighted to be with you. We're as glad you're here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. Loretta Lepore, Republican strategist, former uh, press secretary to Sonny Perdue when he was governor of the state. Back with us. We've missed you. You've been gone for a few weeks. Thank Thanks you. for being back. It's good to be back. And Sam Olins is here. Sam is the one time chairman of the Cobb County Commission. He was the attorney general of the state of Georgia, served as the president of Kennesaw State University, and now you're now you're back to being a lawyer at no, Denton. Michael's jealous. He wishes he was there. <laughs> He's one of my lawyers now. <laughs> An honor to do so. We have a lot to talk about. Jim Galloway, uh, I think it's safe to say that Basically, at the end of the day today, Nathan Deal will close the door on his office at the governor's uh, downtown at the state capitol and walk away about to be a free man. Yeah, yeah, he's got, uh, uh, what is the, it's the sign over time is maybe maybe noon on Monday? On Monday, yeah, a little later than that. I think the swearing in takes place around 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock, all right. Yeah. All right. So what do we say? Let's talk just for a couple minutes, because we, we've talked about uh, Nathan Deal's legacy a bit. But when you start talking about Nathan Deal, you have to start by saying this is a man who leaves office as one of the most popular governors across party lines of any governor in modern Georgia history. Why? Uh, because he walked a very, very careful and correct line between economic development and bringing jobs into Georgia and avoiding the culture wars that uh, other states did not, other Republican-controlled states did really not. Really very succinct statement. Loretta, I was, it was interesting that uh, uh, Tom Faust and Robert Jimison and getting the images that people who watch the TV show will see. There's a picture of Nathan Deal. He's so young. I think he was a Democrat when he was in that picture. I'm sure he was. I didn't recognize him. <laughs> so um, criminal justice reform, obviously one of his major legacies. But as Jim says, he also held the line against religious liberty, vetoing religious liberty bill for a while, held the line on campus carry until he got what he thought were safeguards he needed. So uh, these are accomplishments that uh, have won him uh, high regard from Georgians. 
Absolutely, and I think um, on the economic development front, when people are working and um, feeling prosperous and feeling good about the quality of their lives, um, that's reflected in the governor's uh, legacy. And so he's done a lot on the economic development side in addition to uh, you know, vetoing the RIFRA legislation, which, as Jim said, derailed some other states. Um, so that won him a lot of favor, not only with the business community, but with the broader community at large uh, in the metropolitan area at, the, at a minimum. Um, but he's also done some other things that really have helped on the economic development side, right? Government does not create jobs, but creates fertile ground for job creators to create those jobs, both small businesses that are growing organically here and those wanting to relocate. So he focused on transportation. He was a supporter of transportation, roads and bridges and funding and a Transportation Investment Act. Not necessarily a popular thing to increase taxes with the base of the party, but a much needed infrastructure improvement, um, which is core and vital function of government, which I think um, both of these gentlemen might agree with, having governed and had to deal with those issues as well. Uh, and he spent a lot of time working on workforce coming out of the recession. He inherited government um, at a very... Um, difficult time when the economy was not doing well. And Georgia in particular had a very high unemployment rate. So he did a lot in the workforce to both improve skilled labor and high knowledge jobs by realigning the HOPE grants um, so that he was looking at high demand fields um, and getting people to work, nurses, teachers, um, information technology yeah. experts. Michael, uh, a little bit more of a mixed record on education. I want to come to you on this, given that you were superintendent of schools at DeKalb County. Uh, on one hand, in his final year in office, he fully funded uh, Quality Basic Education Act, which hadn't been done for a very, very long time. Uh, on the other hand, two efforts that he just could not really get across the finish line, uh, one at all and the other not in the form he wanted it, uh, he came in vowing that he would change the quality basic education funding formula, which is so outdated and no longer reflects the education needs of the state. And he realized the political, he didn't end up having the political will because there, to do it because there was so much pushback from legislators and from school districts out there, yes? Well, absolutely. But overall, and I think that's how we judge our leaders, not necessarily on any one specific issue, but overall, uh, being a Democrat, I agree with what's been said. I think he was an extremely successful governor, uh, cons pragmatic conservatism, uh, avoided uh, the far right issues, uh, social cultural issues uh, that I think hopefully Governor Kemp uh, will also seek to avoid. Uh, criminal justice reform, only Nixon could go to China, and only Nathan Deal, maybe a Republican, could really lead the effort to transform and reform our criminal justice system. But he has left it for, and Brian Kemp has said at times he would take this up, for the next governor to look at how to change the funding formula to make it more equitable and make it a better reflection of where the state's at with its educational well, needs. As a former superintendent, what fundamentally needs to change is a recognition that children who come from impoverished homes require additional funding in order for them to get access to quality education. Mm -hmm. That's the core issue. Uh, when and how and if Georgia will fully uh, acknowledge uh, that family economic background, not race or political persuasion, but economic condition actually creates traditional or greater challenges. Uh, we don't, it's, it surprises people to know uh, when you share with them that Georgia has yet to officially acknowledge that fact. Mm -hmm. Educators know it. Uh, professionals know it, academicians know it, 
but the politicians have been slow uh, to come to that realization. Sam, it occurs to me that you as attorney general were there in the earliest stages of the criminal justice reform. So you played a role with the governor in crafting uh, the reform legislation. What will we think of when we think of that as the most important aspect of that legislation? So Thomas Worthy and Supreme Court Justice Mike Boggs have an awful lot to do with that whole process too. Uh, I think it's outstanding. I mean, by definition, it, it was really interesting to me right after Mike Boggs uh, could not get a vote to become a federal judge because of statements with regard to race relations in our state decades before. You had the Obama administration requesting that he go around this country talking about the initiatives he was part of in Georgia on criminal justice mm -hmm. reform. There was such a dichotomy between reality and politics. So, you know, I think of three things when it comes to a criminal justice reform. Number one, it, it saves a lot of money. That's the least important of the three. Number two, the growth and accountability courts is fantastic. It gives people that second chance. It gives them that opportunity to make up for a bad mistake and move forward. And number three, it saves lives. I mean, it's just that simple. If you give people the chance when they have a nonviolent offense to get more education, to get ahead in life, they become successful, productive citizens. And we're going to have many more Georgians now in that camp mm -hmm. rather than sitting in a state prison. <laughs> Sam, let me ask you, back when this was just being contemplated, how much uh, trepidation was there in the back rooms, in Republican back rooms, about tackling this one topic? Well, I think there was considerable trepidation, but the governor didn't have it, and my office didn't have it, and certainly uh, Justice Boggs didn't have it. We all knew it was the right thing to do. You know, some states, Texas and South Carolina, had preceded us. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. It was southern states that took the lead. And uh, as soon as the governor made it a priority and put skin in the game, it was you know, all go. And the governor did a great, great job. And one final thing, you know, and we should celebrate and congratulate Governor Deal, but he had a great partner, uh, the first lady, Sandra Deal, who mm -hmm. one of her last stops was at an elementary school in Decatur, in DeKalb County, uh, in terms of her promoting education, a lifelong educator herself. And really it was a triumphant. And I know Jim Galloway, he will speak to this. It was Governor Dia, Mrs. Dia, and a guy named Chris Riley. And together... His uh, chief of staff. His chief of staff. And long-time advisor. Yes, yes. But, you know, they had the skill set, the ability, and the innovative ideas to kind of lead Georgia uh, in a way that many others would have failed under the challenges that they face. And being a Democrat, I celebrate that fact. Yeah, I, I would say Riley isn't chief of staff. He's alter ego. <laughs> but, 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 Bill, one thing I would point out is that that when 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 a a a, a an office holder finishes a successful stint in an, a job office, uh, there's skill involved, but there's also luck. And I think you have to acknowledge the fact that 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 Deal's tenure pretty much coincides with this a terrific economic boom in in the country and in the state as well. And did he contribute to that? Yes, he did. But did he also benefit from it? Yeah, he did. And he's he's leaving the state. I mean, he walked into the state with with uh, in, uh, with with the with with the government in, in dreadful economic. 
condition, and he's leaving it with a a a, a, a huge rainy day fund. Yeah. And now what's going to be interesting is to see how much respect that rainy day fund gets uh, from the legislature and, 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 and Governor Kemp. Two plus billion dollars in the rainy day fund. Uh, two billion that. doesn't go as far as it used to. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also had the ability, he had both chambers of the legislature were Republican and overwhelmingly Republican um, for most of his tenure. So that helps um, in getting your agenda through. So, um, Let's transition to talking a bit about what Brian Kemp is going to face as he moves into office. And, and we might as well start right where you put us, Jim, which is, you know, we have this enormous rainy day fund. Uh, uh, as you point out, Deal was able to govern during time economic prosperity, times that turned around while he was in office. But uh, there are the concerns right now as the budget writers go to work on figuring out what the revenue estimate, the growth estimate ought to be this year, how they can spend their money, that an economic downturn uh, could make it more challenging to craft the kind of budget you'd like to be able to offer your first year in office. Right. I think, uh, I think uh, revenue receipts for December were down something like 4.7 percent. Yeah. Uh, there are, and of course, we had that market, uh, uh, the market bottomed out in December, and it's still a little wobbly right now. So, Sam, you come into office a little nervous about your ability to spend money. How is that going to affect? the way uh, uh, the, they craft this first budget, do you imagine? So my, my guess is that they're just going to be very conservative. And by conservative, I don't mean yeah. in a partisan way. I, I mean just like what I had to do and what Mike needs to do, and that is, Michael, you you got to have a balanced budget. So it, it seems to me that maybe if you want the raise for the teachers, maybe you announce you want to do it within three years mm -hmm. as compared to one year because you frankly need to make sure that the state stays in very good fiscal health. I expect that what he said he wanted to spend money on, he will, but I think he'll also give himself the cushion to be monitoring the national economic picture at the moment and to give himself that space. And you're going to be careful. It, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, Jim raises the question about that $2 billion plus dollar, uh, reserve. And uh, if you're Nathan Deal, it strikes me, uh, Loretta, that maybe one of the last things you say to your successor, uh, Brian Kemp, is, Brian, leave that reserve alone, right? Well, I think we've learned fairly recently that the need for that fund, when we looked at the hurricane and how it impacted South, South Georgia, there was a reliance upon those funds to free some of those funds up to help those folks. Um, also, it really is part of the equation in our AAA bond rating. And so making sure that that fund stays fortified is critical to us maintaining that rating as a state, which then allows us to bond for big projects like transportation or to build university infrastructure infrastructure or school infrastructure of other kinds. Michael, well, go ahead. You no, make your uh, comment and then I'll raise the question. It will be much easier for uh, future generations of politicians to spend the $2 billion than it was for Nathan Deal and his administration to do it. A cautionary note, I was a labor commissioner in 2008. Yeah. In March, we had $1.2 billion in the unemployment insurance trust fund. <laughs> 18 months later, it was zero. Zero. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it can go quickly. Uh, when we look at uh, unfortunate efforts by the current president in terms of international trade, uh, the, the gyrations that are going on in the stock market, and the challenge is that economically you may already be in a recession. You won't know it until you're almost coming out yeah. of it. 
And so those are the type considerations that Governor Kemp and other budget leaders always have to take into account that we may already be in the recession, even as he takes office. So let me let me uh, stay with you for a second here and a ask you this question and then uh, share it with the rest of the panel. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people are asking, you know, it's out there in the atmosphere, the political uh, atmosphere is how is Brian Kemp going to run? I mean, to govern. Is he going to govern to the middle? Is he going to be bring everybody together? Is he going to run? Uh, his uh, uh, government to the right, embracing some of those social issues that he embraced during the campaign. One of the issues that Jim Galloway and I had a chance to talk to the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, about the other day was a Kemp proposal, which he championed repeatedly on the campaign trail, has to do with guns. He suggested that let's f not worry about permits. People should be able to carry guns wherever they want to, whenever they want to, without permits. And before I give you all a chance to talk about that, uh, let's listen to what the speaker said to us uh, when uh, Jim Galloway asked him that question. I don't know what the appetite's going to be uh, uh, for that kind of uh, legislation uh, in, the, in the House. Um, and... Um, but I, I'm, I'm, we're going to. I'm, I'm going to take a very, very uh, cautious view. I have had two people in my 30, 20 plus years, ever how long I've been here, I've had two individuals mention to me that they thought they ought to be able to carry without a permit. I, I, I you know, frankly, I, I wonder how much of this issue is being ginned up by. Uh, by an extreme uh, fringe special interest group um, that uh, is looking obviously to uh, you know raise funds and do all the things that these groups do. All right, Jim. Before we go to Michael on that, why don't you elaborate on? Okay. It? All right. Uh, that was that was at about that was somewhere before three o'clock on it Wednesday. Was, right. It was about two twenty on Wednesday, on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, by five or six o'clock. Uh, uh, we had tagged uh, Governor-elect Kemp on that topic, and he said, well, yes, he did favor it, but he didn't know that he was going to make it much of a priority. <laughs> and then th and then Thursday morning, I'm just sitting there, and of, uh, the, the, the group that, that uh, Ralston was referring to was uh, Georgia Gun Owners, and uh, the, the executive director of that had sent me an email that included uh, uh, Governor-elect Kemp's form, the, the signed yeah. form that he... A photocopy that, of it. Yes, uh, pledging, uh, 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 pledging his support for, the, for concealed, for constitutional carry is what they call it. So, Michael, the speaker, as he has done on other social hot-button issues, uh, is going to be a speed break on some of these things. And, and may it, it's interesting that Jim says that the Kemp people say, well, it won't be a priority. They may stop. The speaker and his folks may stop some of these things before they even become issues uh, under the gold dome. Well, absolutely. And overlay the fact that the results of November have been fully vetted at this point. Fifteen votes and the Democrats have control of the House. Six votes control of the Senate. That will have a huge impact on the issues that are brought to be considered in the House or the Senate or even advocated for by the new governor. Uh, you are in a, we are in a situation where we see uh, through the votes that were cast is that Georgia is moderating, not so much purple 
or blue or red, but it's moderating in terms of its overall philosophy as it relates to issues. Uh, these are smart men, but they're also successful politicians. They can read the tea leaves like anyone else, and you have to be thinking two years from now, the House, the Senate will be up for grabs. And whether or not the gap will be closed will have a lot to do or influenced by what issues are brought forth in the House and the Senate. Sam, you, as Cobb County chairman, you were in a, at the time a county that was very conservative, obviously. You managed somehow to bring people together to avoid those hot button issues that some of your most conservative constituents wanted you to take on. And like a Nathan Deal, you emerged as one of the most popular CEOs or chairmen, I'm sorry, that Cobb County has had. What's your so what do you tell Brian Kemp about that same uh, issue in terms of his, how he governs? So neither Brian nor Jeff are aggressive risk takers. They're contemplative. They're very conservative. You're talking about Jeff Duncan. Yes, Jeff Duncan, governor. the lieutenant Go governor. Ahead. And they're both very interested in economic development. I mean, Brian has talked much about helping rural Georgia, which is appropriate. It needs it big time. And Jeff is really good with policy, Jeff Duncan, and I think mm -hmm. he is going to press that also. So when I look at what they want most in Georgia, they understand that the speaker can be one of their best friends mm -hmm. in this process. He has the maturity and the experience to keep them away from many of those issues that will divide the state. And, and I agree 100 percent from you. 2020 could put a lot of things in play yeah. in our state. So I think uh, it's frankly a blessing for the two of them that the speaker of the House is being so open and his concern to not go in certain directions. And you know, if I if I could jump in here, I mean, and, and this is this is kind of this is this is is a decades long, decades long tradition uh, that that stretches back to Tom Murphy. Uh, the, a speaker answers only to his house district yeah. Yeah. as long as 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 David Ralston can keep that that North Georgia district happy uh, in, in in terms of of, of what what uh, whatever amenities that it gets, then he pretty much can protect everybody else, including the governor and the lieutenant governor from touching those those uh, third rails, both in the state of Georgia and on a federal level. It's one of the ingenious aspects of the way we organize our government that the speaker of, of a house has to reflect the interest and be always mindful of the interest of the people in his very small constituency. Loretta, um, so one of the other things we talked to David Ralston about was his concern as he looks at issues like uh, uh, no permits for guns, as he looks at religious liberty, which of course he's never favored. He's right. blocked it whenever he can. And some of the other things, that, uh, you know, Kemp has said uh, he wants to uh, pass some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. And we said to him, well, Mr. Speaker, how important is it to you that you don't lose even more ground in areas that suddenly Democrats are taking over in the legislature? I mean, Cobb County went Democratic. Gwinnett County is bringing Democrats down. And Ralston said, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about that. Um, that's another way in which it seems to me the Republicans who continue their control now with campus governor are going to be a little cautious in especially the social issues. Right. Well, I think I think to backtrack one thing, I think that the speaker has in the past supported RIFRA to some extent because it did make it to the governor's desk. Versions of right, it. Versions right. Versions of it. Right. right. And so um, mm -hmm. so I did want to point that out. OK. Um, but but he 
is very mindful and I think feeling the dull sting of the seats that were lost in Metro Atlanta. Yeah. He referenced that in the interview. Yeah. Um, and the fact that a lot of the, the members that he lost in the metro area were female members. And so he's now um, got roughly a dozen new Democratic members um, in the House. And he has to be mindful of that governing moving forward. There is, um, in, in, in the House, uh, elected in November, there were, there are nine Republican House members who were elected with margins of 53% or less. Yeah. Most yeah. of them are in the metro areas. And every one of them, plus a few more, are going to have Democratic opposition in 2020. Well, look at, you know, for instance, uh, the House seat in Johns Creek went to a Democrat. Right. John yeah. Albers barely won. 53%. Right. So, I mean, you know, my, my Congresswoman is now a Democrat. So the speaker is 100% correct to say, let's put the brakes on here a little bit and get some strength. I want, I want to give you the last word before we have to take a break, Michael. Uh, it, 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 Jim Galloway pointed out in his column the other day that uh, half the population of Georgia now lives in 10 counties and uh, only two of those 10 counties are Republican. You, of course, oversee a county that is has been dramatic, predominantly Democratic for a long time. Now almost totally Democratic yeah. <laughs> as a result of the uh, last election. And, and the change is afoot. And even those who resisted it or attempted to ignore it, now it's become a real proposition. It's going to impact philo political philosophies and strategies. And consider also that President Trump may be on the ballot in 2020. May, we noted, may, we noted Michael may. Thurman <laughs> may. All right. That is the last word of this segment. We've got to get to a break. When we come back, we'll have a lot more on Political Rewind. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start. And by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Who are the people whose names you see at the end of a movie or a TV show? I'm Kalina Bowler. I've worked for years behind the scenes in Georgia's booming film industry. In my GPB podcast, I meet the people who help bring art to life, from actors to stuntmen to camera operators. Join me for the credits. Subscribe at thecreditspodcast.com. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Before we continue our conversation, let me just remind you that uh, GPB is going to present live coverage of the inauguration of Brian Kemp this coming Monday. GPB Radio and TV will bring you the entire inaugural ceremony starting at 2 p.m. on TV, radio, on our digital platforms. 
But before that, at 1 o'clock, we'll present a special edition of Political Rewind live from McCamish Pavilion on the Georgia Tech campus, which is where the inauguration will take place. Jim and Loretta will both be with me, along with Dr. Andre Gillespie, uh, to talk all about the uh, inauguration. Uh, you know, whether you, uh, uh, we, there was, this was such an acrimonious election, and we know there are people who are grumbling and very unhappy, but an inauguration is a momentous day. A transition of power is always fascinating to watch. Right, and and everyone, everyone is going to be listening to Brian Kemp because yeah. because where is he heading? Where is he heading? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the uh, Safe Commission, which Brian Kemp, the Secretary of State, put in place to look at alternatives. Uh, to how we cast our ballots, came back with its recommendation. And uh, Sam, they decided that we should have what they called ballot marking computers, machines that you would cast your ballot on. It would then leave a paper trail. Uh, despite the fact that there was testimony from a lot of people saying they'd rather, we, we should have hand ballots, hand marked ballots. I, 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 why is this a partisan issue, for goodness sake? Well, I think it was a partisan <laughs> issue just because we just had an acrimonious election. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it's totally political. I didn't know that we were looking to repeat Florida and pregnant chads or hanging chads. So it, it seems to me that the committee, frankly, made the right recommendation. Why is it the right recommendation? Well, number one, I don't want to be up till five in the morning to know who won. Uh -huh. So I actually like the computer being a large part of the process. Number two, I think the people deserve a paper trail. So this machine provides, this process provides the best of both. If you look at the paper and it's wrong, then you can immediately go up to a ballot worker and then you've got a big issue that needs to be resolved immediately. So I, I think they frankly uh, followed the will of the people. They frankly followed the will of the majority of the folks interested in this area. And uh, I think it's uh, unfortunate that the election still has this acrimonious it, yeah, follow. If, if I could ju jump in here, Bill, it, it's it's uh, in in terms of uh, what the partisan dis uh, difference is. It is it is uh, uh, largely it's trusting whether you trust the computers or not, and and that that has become a part partisan issue. The the optical scan version requires uh, more hands-on, more labor. And that's, I think that's a very, that's very key to this decision because you do have 159 counties that still have to man these machines and, and people them, and that's a big part but, of but it. But it is interesting, Michael, that the one cybersecurity expert who was uh, put on that panel, a Georgia Tech professor, was one of the votes for uh, hand-marked ballots then scanned optically. Yes, and the evolution of this issue has been somewhat fascinating. Uh, thinking back through it, it really originated this whole question about the integrity of the voting process on the far right. And oh, now, absolutely. is that is that fair? That it, that's the no. This was this was you know, you know you had great suspicions that Kathy Cox had fixed the was was going to fix the the election of of two thousand two. Yeah, when and she now, introduced yes, those, yes. Yep. And so now Democrats, progressive Democrats, are <laughs> the most vocal uh, supporters of improving that process. How much money do you, as a county, uh, have to put into new machines, and how much comes from the feds? You know, I 
a percentage. Do you have a sense of what the breakdown is? Candidly, I'm not. The money from the feds was minimal. Minimal. Oh, I thought they helped pay local. And and frankly, when I chaired Cobb, we paid like 50 percent of it because the number of machines they were giving us would have created holy hell of backup. Well, so what's interesting about that, Loretta, is the handmarked ballots route is much more inexpensive. I mean, you know, exponentially less expensive than the computers that they're going to have to bring in. Well, I haven't done an analysis of that, but I think to Jim's point, it requires more manual labor. So the mach- you may not have the machines that are cost intensive, but you would then have to have so many more volunteers okay. or paid county officials working at these polling stations. Do so I don't in- know what the net the net net would be. Do keep in mind this Thursday uh, in, Co- in a Cobb County courtroom. We are going to have a, a, a first hearing on a lawsuit challenging the the, the race for lieutenant, lieutenant governor. governor. And it does get to the kind of uh, the internals of, of, uh, of our current voting machine system. Um, this, nevertheless, no matter what happens, the Safe Commission made its recommendations, but in the long run, it's the legislature that during this session will have to make the call on it. And Loretta, they don't have a lot of time. I mean, we're going to start voting in presidential primary not much longer than a year from now. Right. And they, so uh, legislation will have to be passed, and then there becomes the process of purchasing, you know, the procurement process, which in of itself is going to be a little laborious. Um, they've got identified vendors, and they've short-circuited that. They've tried to move that process along in parallel to the Safe Commission meeting, so at least they have a pool of providers. Um, but it, it's not an easy process, and then it has to be deployed to the counties, and everybody has to They've got to be trained, and then your voters have to understand uh, it. And... and Citizens have to understand that elections are primarily ran and managed at the local level. Right. Uh, The Secretary of State has an important role to play. You sound like a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Just the way the system works. You know what I really sound like? Someone had, as a CEO of the camp, we had to administer the election. We had this huge turnout, hundreds of thousands of people. But I thought that was this conspiracy against A.C. Abrams. And and, and meanwhile, it was the large Democrat counties in Atlanta that had the biggest delays. (laughs) Well, but what Loretta said, though, is not just the county, but it's who is administering the election, who holds the levels of power determine how elections get controlled or not or influenced. And so is that the local level? Right. But, and, but, and we're going to have some high state level uh, discussions on how much, on what kind of guidance these 159 counties Count. are being given on 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 how to process absentee ballots, signatures for such. But look, that, that's Prevent- very appropriate. I mean, my goodness, the AJC actually did a really nice story Showing the now, there's equity. a rare compliment <laughs> from Olin's. <laughs> After he called me, he called me a Republican because I'm interested in making sure my elections are run right in the Go ahead. I'm a big fan of the CEO for decades. Go ahead. It's local control. I mean, you know, no, I, I think that what the AJC uh, article showed about how different elections offices were, were making inappropriate comments about what was appropriate, what wasn't, what Ballot counted what ballot that that needs to come back as a standardized process. Right. I want to move forward, but I, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I want to leave. Make sure I cover one other aspect of this because I may have um, misunderstood how this process works. 
do is it the state that will subsidize the machines and you the pay their, as counties the rest? The state provides a number of machines Jeez. per population. And then the counties complain that the state inadequately funded it and they have to put in extra okay, money. Okay, but, but and, the I, state, and the state, the Secretary of State's office can get money from the federal government. And the decision is likely to be made within the budget itself. Well, it's, that's why I raised how right, convenient so you want the election process budget. to be. Am I going to have three precincts or 10 or 15 as a local decision that will have a huge impact on access to the process? It's another potential stress on a state budget that we already have said may have to be a cautious one this right. year. Right, so there's, there, are, there are federal <clears throat> grants that are available to right. states. The okay. states have to apply for those grants that will come down. That will be added to state okay. dollars. Uh, Jim Galloway, your colleague, Greg Bluestein, broke what uh, those of us who really love to follow politics think it's a pretty interesting story. Oh, yeah. Where was Stacey Abrams yesterday? Why, or she, on, fr on Thursday? Why, she was in Washington, D.C. What was she doing there, Jim? Well, she <laughs> she talked to this guy named Chuck Schumer, yeah. and the, the head of the Democratic Senate Congressional or, uh, Campaign Committee yeah. about running for U.S. Senate from Georgia in 2020 against David Purdue. Um, okay, so the first question I would ask is, do we have, do, was Bluestein able to get to the bottom of whether Schumer and Cortez Masto, the, uh, the chair of the Senate Re-Election Committee, uh, invited her to come up there, or whether she decided to pay a courtesy call on them you know the I dynamic would, I, of that look, I, would I would, tell us a lot. Uh, no, no, he hasn't. He hasn't found that out. I'm, I'm guessing that the impetus was from Washington. I would think that's right, Loretta. They, they of course, if you are a leader in the U.S. Senate, you're going to want to try to get convinced Stacey Abrams she ought to run against David Perdue in 2020, right? Well. Well, they're going to want to put their best candidates forward. And there was an article in the, in the national level um, about some of the key races that the the Senate Democrats are targeting, Georgia being one of them, Colorado. Yep. And, uh, you know, there's probably eight districts on that list. Um, Susan Collins in Maine. Um, there was a whole number of them. So there, this is a strategy on behalf of the Democrats in Washington. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me if they made a call and asked her to come up there. But she's also working up there already on a board of one of the um, think tanks, yeah. the liberal think tanks. Um, you, uh, Michael, you potentially have a terrific uh, field of candidates for U.S. Senate. We know that Teresa Tomlinson is looking very seriously at uh, jumping into the race. Jim Galloway told us on Rewind the other day that uh, there are people who are significant Democrats who said that perhaps Michelle Nunn may be looking at uh, making the race again. Um, does everybody have to clear out for Stacey Abrams if um, if she's going to, if she declares in March, which she says is when she'll tell us about her future, do they all have to clear out for her? No, I don't think anyone has to clear out. I think any uh, practical person would have to look at the fact that she generated uh, more Democratic votes than any other candidate in the history of Georgia politics. I think it'll be a more of a practical analysis as opposed to clearing out. Now, what is also uh, we have to consider, not just at the Senate level, but Georgia is now officially a battleground state. Most of the ferment... What do you mean it's officially a battleground state? November 2018 made it so. Okay. It is officially so. Okay. And I think... <laughs> <laughs> so what is really driving uh, some of the ferment is that presidential candidates 
who are interested in winning either a Democratic or a national race needs Georgia. And if a Democratic national presidential candidate can pick off Georgia, it changes the game. In Especially terms of the Ohio national map, if Ohio, if Ohio remains, a, yeah. yeah, if Ohio remains a red state, Sam, then you've got to look elsewhere, and Georgia be one of the places you so, look. So, two comments. One, it is uh, not uh, in Stacey's best interest to wait four years to run again. Yeah. She's got the machine in place now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It makes far more sense for her to run in two years, where she can retain a lot of those volunteers and leaders to help her. Second. The man to my life is probably to my left is probably the most successful Democrat around in our state. And uh, he may be happy where he is, but he certainly has the capability to do far more. Well, <laughs> did, I, did I make up for my earlier comment? <laughs> you, you're done good. <laughs> all right. So with that in mind, Michael. Now, so is this why you all invited me here? This is a political <laughs> intervention. Is that what you see? I feel like I'm in. Oh, no. So that's why we invited you here. Do you have any thoughts about running for the Senate as you did in 2010? Well, not necessarily for the Senate, but as I've said <laughs> yeah. on many occasions, there's only one cure for political ambition. Yes. That. And it's called formaldehyde. Only surefire cure to get it out of your system. Uh, but no, I think we'll have a strong field of candidates. I enjoy what I'm doing uh, at the local level. We're look, making a difference. If you and, if uh, you look at the press in DeKalb County before he became CEO, yeah. and the yeah. press in DeKalb County yeah. now, yeah. it's totally different. There, you know what? Speaking of your comment about the AJC a little while ago. They're not on the front page of your newspaper the way they used to be virtually no. every week. <laughs> no, they're not. Well, Good I God told Kevin Riley on the show, on Rewind, that uh, the first thing I do when I get my AJC, my e online each morning at 6 o'clock, I check to see if we're on the front page, and then I All go right, back to so sleep. Just I, it's going to be a good day. <laughs> I, That's I, honestly, day. honestly, this was not part of the... I'm just kidding. No, well, I know no. you are, but, but just to close the conversation out, what you're telling us is that it's quite possible that DeKalb County CEO is not the end of your political career, that there may be a next step. But are you giving any thought to jumping into this Senate race? And if Abrams decided not to... On the advice of counsel... Would you perhaps any. think about running? <laughs> no, let me tell you what's most on my mind right now. Okay. Reducing the number of wet weather sewer spills in DeKalb County, Georgia. <laughs> that's my number one issue uh, right now. Well, as a resident of the county, I yeah, hope Yeah, that's my succeed. number one issue. All right, let's... Uh, Loretta is so... I'm in, taking that as a yes. Yeah, I, I, it's really interesting. <laughs> Shirley Franklin was a sewer mayor. Yeah. I am now the sewer CEO. <laughs> I, would, I would tell you the Chairman Boyce and Cobb has plenty of uh, water. I saw Mark all right. this morning. All right. I I gotta, all right, all right. Let's do this. Let's get another break out of the way. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation, but we're going to talk about it from the Republican point of view. We're going to talk about it in terms of what a new poll may suggest to us uh, is going on with David Perdue and his support in Georgia. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back.
I'm Sarah Amon. I own Out of the Blue in Blue Ridge, Georgia. We specialize in wines from around the world and high-end cheeses. And we also have craft beer. I think a lot of people that listen to GPB, it's just part of their day-to-day routine. I have people coming up from Atlanta just to see what Out of the Blue is all about because they hear our ads all the time, and they say so. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Hi, this is Ira Plato. Did you know that a marathon runner's heart is actually built differently from a weightlifter's? Why? Well, this week on Science Friday, we'll talk about how exercise conditions and shapes your heart. Plus, shining a new light on black holes and watching what they eat. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. 3 o'clock this afternoon on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, Loretta Lepore, Sam Olins, and uh, Michael Thurmond are uh, with us. Uh, I have a senior producer, Tom Faust, who's talking in my ear, and he says, Bill, this is the last chance you get to remind people that we are going to cover the gubernatorial inauguration of Brian Kemp this coming Monday. GPB Radio and TV will both bring you live coverage of the inaugural ceremony. That coverage starts at 2. But before that, at 1, we're going to have a special edition of Political Rewind live from a Camish Pavilion on Georgia Tech, which is where the inauguration will take place. Jim and Loretta will be here with us for that, along with Dr. Andre Gillespie. So remember, on Monday, join us an hour earlier at 1 o'clock for Rewind and at 2 for the inauguration of Brian Kemp. Okay? Everybody got that there. I'll be there. Good. Loretta Lepore. Yes. uh, PPP, Public Policy Polling, which is a relatively respected polling organization. You go to 538, which rates pollsters, and they give them a solid B for their success in predicting uh, outcomes of elections for their methodology, all that sort of stuff. This poll was was commissioned by two relatively liberal organizations, a move on and a liberal immigration advocacy group. That All that said, they looked at Georgia specifically. What's the approval rating for Donald Trump? 51% in Georgia now say they disapprove of his job performance. 46 say they approve. So that's the starting point. But then they ask this. Um, who do you blame for the government shutdown? 51% say they blame Trump. 46% say they blame the Democrats in Congress, the same numbers as the approval-disapproval number. Um, Then they say, would you support or oppose Congress voting to reopen the government without funding the border wall? 53% say yes, get the government open without the border money. 43% say no. And then finally, and then I want to open this up to all of you, does Senator Perdue's support of President Trump plan to keep the government closed? Uh, make you more likely to support him or less likely, 41% say they're more likely because they like his stand with the president. 50% say less likely. 7% say it doesn't make a difference. Okay, lots of numbers. What do they tell you? 
Well, they tell me that that we haven't moved much since the election in November, right? We know how the state breaks down. That's that's very fresh in our minds, um, and I think that that evidence is our poll that we need to go with. Um, I think I was a little surprised that not more people said they wanted the government to open. Um, 53, 43. I thought that was a little bit interesting. Um, I just would have anticipated because even though those who support the wall, many who support the wall would like to see the government open. So um, I, I found that number to be a little interesting. I think the numbers around David Perdue, quite frankly, are a little misleading because there are caveats in there. There are too many caveats in there. And it was asked in a very um, awkward manner. And so I don't think that gauges real support or, or lack of support for him in the state. Do you think, Sam, if you were David Perdue's office, though, you'd look at these numbers um, and say, gee, we ought to be recalibrating how, how vociferously we support the president on initiatives, especially this one? No. I think the... Uh the data on a poll is really uh, of minimal value without the name of the opponent. So, for instance, when you, I remember when everyone said George W. Bush was going to lose the second term and then he got a gift called John Kerry. Mm -hmm. You can have all the numbers you want about Donald Trump, but if it's Elizabeth Warren who's running against him, Trump wins. So I think the opponent makes a big, big difference in the race. And when you have a poll without the name of an opponent, I just don't give it much credit. Well, one other figure to throw out, um, Mike, and, and, and have you react to this. Um, more people in this poll, Loretta says not as many as she expected, say let's get the government back open without the wall funding uh, at, by 10 points than people who say don't. But when, you, when they asked people whether they support or oppose the president's wanting the $5.7 billion to build the wall, it's even split. 48 say we support that. 48% say they don't. Today was an important day. Obviously, the poll, uh, the data was generated prior to... January 7th and 8th. So. Friday... Uh, with January, today, as we sit here, is the first payday that people yeah. actually miss a check. Yeah. It's been a theoretical discussion. Now I'm at a point where I don't actually have the money I need to pay my rent, to buy food for my family, uh, to put gas in my car. It's a game-changing moment in time with this shutdown. And even people who may have supported it philosophically, now I'm facing, I'm looking at my children and my primary responsibility is to put food on the table. That's what's being debated. While we debate the politics, real people are debating how am I going to feed my family and pay my rent and get my children to school on Monday. Well, that may be, Jim, one reason why uh, there's a 10% margin for p people saying, yes, please get the government back open, even without the funding for the wall right now. Oh, of course. But but as far as the PPP the survey is concerned, what I would, would say is, number one, this too shall pass. Uh, yes, yes, mm -hmm. this, this, this federal shutdown is dire, and, and, and there's going to be a lot of pain for a lot of people for, for quite a few more weeks, I think. But... By by November 2020, people are going to have that. It, it's it's going to be in the very much in the rearview mirror. If you are David Perdue looking at, at a poll, I, I agree with Loretta. I think you look at November uh, 2018, November 6, and you see that Brian Kemp, 
really hardening down on, on rural Georgia, one with 50.22% yeah. of the vote. Yeah. And if you are David Perdue, you want to know how can you do that and yet regain that sliver of, of suburban uh, metro Atlanta that would allow him to, 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 to fend off any, any anti-Trump backlash. Well, and having been a CEO and having been the business background, <clears throat> he's going to naturally have a little more support in metro. Right from the business community and folks that are aligned, so there's a little bit of a difference there. But I think you know your point too. Are the are the Purdue folks um, watching this? Are they mindful of this? They're preparing for the worst of the worst, right? Mm. They're preparing. They know they've got a target. Um, they know Chuck Schumer is, is you know coming for them. They know that there's going to be an exponential number of dollars poured into this state working against him. So they're geared up for the battle of the battles. And I, I want to say, Sam mentioned something, and we've talked about the suburbs, uh, uh, college-educated, primarily white women. Democrats also, as we continue to build on that, you have to protect it now. You also have to have candidates who won't lose it. So part of the strategy and the thinking about 2020 and beyond is we have to uh, uh, nominate candidates who can build upon the growing uh, consensus that this party uh, that is currently in power does not represent our views and our ethics and our worldview about how this state and our nation should operate. You know, what I wonder, is, I don't disagree with what Mike said, what I wonder though is at what point did the Democrats start saying, you know, we could really make one heck of a deal now involving DACA because, you know, the deal before <clears throat> Trump didn't get enough to support it and it didn't get the 60 votes. One would think right now he would take less than he demanded before. So if the Democrats are that interested in protecting DACA, this is their best time to have it come up. Well, and if the president was interested in immigration reform, uh, whether it's DACA, or even interested in actually a wall, this is pure crass politics. And what he's really trying to do is, a, is appeal to his base, his 30, 33% of the voters uh, that he believes he needs to weather the storm that's brewing with the Democrats taking control of the House. We can't even get to 2020. He's going to have to basically survive, and I, I use the word inquisition, but he's going to have to survive what's getting ready to occur uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives over the next two years. As, as far as Doc is concerned, I, I think there was a, a, a caucus of Senate Republicans yesterday, and Mike Pence said yeah. uh, uh, Donald Trump is not interested. Said he won't do it. Uh, let me move to another aspect of this, though, Jim, because you all had an, uh, an, a piece on this, uh, the insider. Uh, so the president says, maybe I'll declare a national emergency and get the funding for the wall that way. David Perdue says, yep, I'm all for that because we're living in new times. You can't get things through a divided Congress. Uh, a couple of other Republicans who were reached by the AJC, Doug Collins, Buddy Carter, said, yes, we support it. Interestingly enough, Johnny Isaacson was very skeptical about the president exercising his executive powers to do this. In, in emergency management powers. It was uh, yeah, uh, our, our AJC correspondent, Tamar Hollerman, who we've mm -hmm. had on the show quite a, quite a bit, uh, sat down and talked with him. And uh, it, it's, it's, uh, Johnny Isaacson is, is kind of the, this is the traditional Republican role of, of skeptical of, of, of extreme executive power. Uh, and, and his first 
thought was, his first, you will like this, uh, his first thought was to take us back to about 1977 or 79 during the uh, Atlanta missing and murdered children yeah. crisis when Governor Busby wanted to declare an emergency that would have allowed the state to take over that investigation. And, and Isaacson opposed it. Yeah. Well, yeah. When will Republicans say enough is enough? Lorella, I mean, really. Well, I mean, Chuck and Nancy can't keep saying it. <coughs> yeah, what, 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 when Nancy, is enough Chuck and Nancy enough? Have to get How to much baby. of this can we really endure before good, honest, hardworking, decent people like John Isaacson would say no? All right, we're, what I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, because we're down to the last minute. What I was going to say is akin to the Speaker of the House, Johnny Isaacson has always been the common sense mm -hmm. individual who tries to bring people together. Interestingly enough, Senator Rubio was on that exact same page yesterday. Yeah. If you have a Democrat president in two years, do you then have a national order on climate change? Okay. And, and Loretta, give you the last 30 seconds because Michael went all partisan on you. <laughs> Well, okay, we'll go back to Barack Obama then when he signed the executive order on DACA. Um, wasn't so, so well received then either. Okay, <laughs> that's it. We're out of time for this show. <laughs> Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, you two ought to take your act on the road. But don't. Keep, keep bringing it back here to Political Rewind. Loretta Lepore, it's always great to have you with us. And you too, Galloway. I'll see both of you uh, on Monday when we do Political Rewind at 1 o'clock. Uh, before the inauguration, and uh, we'll be here right through over at McCamish, right through the inauguration itself. So it ought to be fun. And I hope most of you out there will be able to join us, whether it's on GPB TV, radio, or on our digital platforms. We're all over the place. You can't miss it. See you then. <laughs>